This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Bruno Dumont's France, and the theme is the media. Helen, kick us off. Okay, well, I decided to talk about something different today, which I guess is to do with the media, uh, but I guess it's more to do with um, storytelling rather than um, some kind of like political or cultural phenomenon, aside from the medium that is film. And um, basically, I mean, I, ha- I harp on about this a lot, about um, what I think about um, the power of narrative film, how narrative film, because it's so um, sort of technically dense and riven and it um, hijacks our, our desire, we libidinally invest in it. And so it has this potential to maybe show us different dynamics of desire, which can have um, kind of ethical or political implications in a positive way. And that that's really, you know, part of what make, makes film so powerful. But this film is doing something really different. And in a way, I was really surprised by it. Sort of like um, there are elements of it that I found a little bit annoying in the beginning. And I don't know if the um, little bits that I sort of was a bit um, less impressed by maybe are to do with this, um, what I think is powerful about it. I think there were kind of a, little is- a few issues with it. But aside from that, it was doing something very different to the usual sort of Hollywood film style or riven sort of Anglo narrative film. And part of me does think that like maybe I came up with this theory as a sort of a justification for the fact that I have to tell stories in this, in this way <laughs> to get anything made. Um, and that this was sort of something learned. And I kind of spent a lot of time growing up in France and, you know, France and French culture is one of my first love. So I obviously watched a lot of film and that really influenced how I think I would quote unquote naturally, I think there's a, a natural thing per se, but like how I initially would go about making films. And it really sort of did something in a way I was like, oh, this is something that is very different. And maybe I've been um, like trained out of, in a sense, but I would also love to explore, which is, you. so it, it, it looks, it's a sort of a film-shaped entity. It looks a lot like just a regular Hollywood film. It's quite high production value, especially for a French film. I mean, this director has had a few um, well-received, critically well-received sort of more art house films, and he's able to do something with a bigger budget. Um, but he's not a, not um, created a script that really functions like a script in terms of like um, the uh, machinistic um, kind of technical forms of a script. It's a script that looks like a script, but it doesn't really um, start with a lacking character who's going after a goal um, and uh, has all sorts of things in their way and sort of really endeavours to get to something. It's really a series of scenes that paint a picture. And I think the fact that, but this isn't something that you often, I think, and maybe some people who watch it who are more used to that Anglo form of film would think like this is just sort of badly written. And I did see a few people maybe um, critique it for that. It wasn't like massively well received, although it did play at Cannes. But I actually think that kind of that's the point in that we don't identify with this character, this um, journalist, in a way that we usually would um, with a more conventional um, Hollywood type film. We wouldn't pity her or feel um, empathy, but rather we feel alienated from her because the character is not written in such a way that elicits 
an audience investment on the level of desire, this sort of libidinal investment where we identify with this lacking character, we empathize them with them, and we go on this sort of journey. There's no really kind of totalizing narrative arc. There's no yes, no at the end, is this a comedy or a tragedy? There's no, it doesn't really fit into a certain genre other than this sort of like ethereal play on something that looks kind of conventional. And I think that's really important because it's sort of an artifact that um, looks like a film and sounds like a film and is within a sort of glitzy, glamorous world. But in a sense, we feel nothing, but that nothing is saying something. Like, I don't think that the overall effect, which is a really interesting effect, as I said, I think there were some like issues with kind of editing and stuff early on. And there was a scene in particular where, spoiler alert, the um, main character's husband and child die which is filmed really bizarrely. It's a, a, a set of shots that go on for a long, long time, um, this couple driving in the south of France. And there's this repeated um, sound effect, this foley, which is very badly done. And I was like, is this supposed to be bad? As in, um, is this a, a choice that leads to an effect, which is basically the sound of a, an eagle soaring or some kind of like large bird of prey. And it's this repeated squawk that sounds the same over and over and over again. Which obviously, if you're trying to recreate reality and lose the audience in the moment, you know, you're supposed to create something that um, evokes something more natural. You have a more random sound, you know, um, Foley artists do really, really interesting things there. So I'm not sure if that was deliberate or not, but the the overall effect of this scene that went on for way too long and has this very, very overly intrusive um, kind of synth music and synth music has sort of really become popular maybe after drive in 2011 and it can have a really kind of like intense corporeal draw to it in terms of the viewer's experience but it kind of is like too intrusive it's like too much so rather than the film and um, bringing us in on every level and being kind of like a readily text in the sense of really you know real and writes about the writing text the really text as in this is not the job of the audience recreating a world and writing their own world in their mind. They're sort of taken on this experience, really led by the hand. It's sort of jarring. And the jarringness, I think, serves a purpose, which is that, it, yeah, it, it gets us to feel something that we wouldn't otherwise feel, which is potentially the experience of the main character, which in the regular canonical, quote unquote, because I know, you know, different nations have different forms of storytelling, but there is a a sort of prevalent form. It doesn't, that wouldn't really do this experience justice. It's too much of a sort of unspeakable alienation and this character that feels really sad beyond words, who sort of endlessly cries. We wouldn't feel that unless we as the viewer were seeing this film in with that sort of jarring experience, that kind of alienated response in ourselves so that you know the film goes from scene to scene and sort of like this is an event from her life this is an event from her life oh her her her, she she loses everything I think if you read a plot online it sort of vaguely says that there's an event that she engages in which cascades and creates a series of terrible things happening in her life and it it isn't really a naturally building script where one thing leads to another and sort of a very clear plot it's something happens that maybe she it sort of jars her because she's feeling a bit alienated. Something this intense experience happens, and then a series of things happen, but they're not really. They don't really feel like they have a natural flow. And I think the sort of jigsaw Frankenstein-y um, sense to the film was really what makes it work. Weirdly, in a way that technically 
you know, quote unquote, shouldn't. And I, I, I say that with a, you know, quote unquote, because I think there can be people can grasp onto um, certainties about a form that aren't necessarily, you know, not necessarily holding true all the time, although we might say this is an exception to the rule. But yeah, no, I have to say I found it kind of moving in a sense because it sort of expressed something that maybe I had intent, you know, I had wanted to be able to express, which is the surreality of life and the feeling of alienation within the symbolic order that this more um, uh, conventional reassuring form of film, although I think that this reassuring form can have real emancipatory potential if it's used in an interesting way, if it really undercuts it can undercut ideology in an interesting way. But in terms of atmosphere and tone, I think it did something that I really missed personally. And it really potentially jarred me out of um, feeling a certain way about have, about my own craft. So I liked it a lot. Cool. All right, Nina, you're up. Yeah, cool. I'm, I'm glad um, you had that response. Um, Helen, I, you know, I, I sort of, I've, I've been trying to watch a lot of films by Bruno Dumont recently and, um, I find him very, very intriguing. He was trained as a philosopher and he taught philosophy for a while. And it's it's not that's not to say in any way that there's a necessary uh, link between those two things uh, in some ways. But I, I I do kind of admire in the films that I've seen and he's he's made lots of films and they're often very different. Like he's made musicals, he's made, you know, comedies, he's made very brutal kind of violent art house indie films that, and some of his films are very extreme in certain ways. And he's often associated with a certain kind of transgressive cinema. Um, and there's often lots of kind of abrupt things that happen in his films without kind of, as you say, like continuity or explanation or narrative form necessarily. Uh, and I think there's a kind of uh, deliberate insistence on a lack of interiority like people don't have, I mean there are scenes in this film for example which is relatively unusual I think for his films where where the main character uh, played by Lea Sidhu who's who's otherwise a very famous actress right who's apparently been in lots of very mainstream films not that I've seen those films right but I think one of the implications is uh, not only that he had more money to make this film but but he wants to do something with this particular actress um, and I think this kind of emphasis on her face, you know, the whole film is about this woman's face and it's absolutely extraordinary. You know, she she makes the most unbelievable expressions. I mean, she's clearly very beautiful and charismatic and very strange looking. And part of the whole film is about this kind of allure of the media. Um, and she's literally called France. You know, she's in a way like the face of a certain image of French media, television culture and the kind of presentation of um, a certain type of journalism and you know there, there's, there's scenes where lots of people come up to her and approach her and want to take her photograph and want to be near her and, and around her and so it's a partly depiction of I think a certain you know image of fame but also of the particular kind of face you know and, and cinema uniquely I think is able to do this and this is something that Pasolini was obsessed with too is was 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 the face you know and the uniqueness of faces in a certain way and Pasolini is, is increasingly upset at the modern world because he says it makes everybody look the same, you know, that people lose history, like capitalism destroys people's physiognomy and their uniqueness. And I think there's something very interesting going on with this, that only cinema can do in a certain way to do with the, with the face and or, to, or maybe more specifically to do with expression. And there are many scenes that are kind of close-ups of her face and they're not always... Um, you know, seductive or attractive, right? She's depicted, as Helen said, frequently crying. There's a kind of 
um, impossibility of understanding her. And I think that's also very interesting. Like the, his films, I think, are uniquely resistant to discourse or interpretation as well. They're very hard to talk about, which is also why I wanted to set this film for us, because it, there's something resistant. You know, there isn't an obvious uh, way of understanding either his oeuvre or, you know, the relation between the different films or the specific film instead and and so there's almost like this impassibility of her emotion so there are scenes where she's angry there's scenes where she's pouting the scenes again where she's crying often perhaps in maybe like slightly inappropriate situations but then that also raises this question of manipula ma manipulation and the use of sentimentality in media and, and one of the main scenes is is her kind of doing a uh, a stint on a, on a refugee boat in the Mediterranean, but but the media um, organization have their own separate boat where where she she goes, and then then of course it's all about this sort of pretense and this idea of embeddedness. But then there are other scenes where she's literally running around as a war zone, kind of putting the rest of the crew in danger. It's not clear if she's doing that because of some kind of personal, I don't know, almost like death wish. Um, or because she she's deeply committed to the to journalism and and there are all of these kind of repeated takes, you know, which kind of distantiate you from the if you like the idea that reporting is in any way a direct reflection of the reality. Um, and of course, in a way, we already know this. It's not. I, I don't think it's really a film about the media either. Even though I said this was the topic, because it, it sort of is, but it's not really like a. It's not some kind of great critique of media that we're not familiar with. I mean, the idea, particularly in television, that everything is kind of framed and, you know, staged. Um, we we know that, if you like. So I, I don't think it particularly tells you anything about that. But I think it's something stranger that, you know, that it is to do with this expressiveness or, or inability to translate. So when she sympathizes with kind of people that she's interviewing, it is a mock. It's a kind of simulation of emotion or, or affect or but at the same time, it's not not real. So I think maybe maybe this film is about the not not real somehow, um, because she she you know she's also crying like inappropriately about perhaps other things and you know and terrible things do happen to her like she's she's betrayed she loses you know the two people she's closest to, um, but at the same time I, I suppose there's almost like an implication that because she's beautiful and successful that her pain is is not as real somehow or that it's also it's, it's always already wrapped up in a mediatic uh way somehow that it's always for the other it's always for the camera so so you don't get access really to her inner states even when she's sort of being analyzed or even when she's talking to kind of psychotherapists or or people in that way uh in a sort of quasi confessional way but it's also a kind of empty so so there is this kind of depiction i think of this like fundamental like absence in the heart of the body of a beautiful woman who is used to being looked at, you know, what, what is the, what is the inner life of a beautiful woman? <laughs> I suppose. Uh, and maybe there's something about, about this, um, which, which kind of just raises more questions than it answers, I think, which is why I think it's a very open end, like deliberately open-ended film. And, and I suppose like Helen, you're saying, you know, you, you were wondering about the kind of whether some of the cuts and the, the choices were deliberate. And I, when I watch films or listen to music, when I read a book, I always think that everything is deliberate in a certain way. I always think, you know, and, and rightly or wrongly, right. I, I sort of think that every decision was made consciously by the writer or the director or, um, 
And I, I mean, obviously with cinema, I also don't make film when you do, right? So you're also looking at films in a slightly different way. Um, but I kind of think, especially with someone like Dumont, that everything is intentional. Like everything is kind of deliberate and, you know, particularly where it's jarring or, you know, doesn't work or is 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 alienating or distantiating. Um, yeah, and, I, and I, I, I sort of think this film is, is interesting because it tries to sort of talk about real things that are mainstream. You know, it's not a classic art house film in the sense that it's about alienated individuals doing strange things that no one cares about. <laughs> you know, it's trying to talk about Paris, the capital of France. It's trying to talk about the media. It's trying to talk about beauty or whatever and using this famous actress. So, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. There's something very intriguing, I guess, about this film and all of, and all of his work, I suppose. That's all I, that's all I can say. <laughs> all right, I am up. Bruno Dumont's France came out just last year. It stars Léa Seydoux as a famous TV journalist. The film rubs a lot of critics the wrong way for a couple reasons. It's been cut together in an almost deliberately imperfect fashion, and it critiques a profession that Hollywood has been desperate to praise in recent years. Spotlight and the Post are a far cry from the halcyon days of network. In our era, the Washington Post reminds us that democracy dies in the darkness. They're not kidding about that, not even a little. In this environment, it's hard for France to get a fair hearing, even leaving aside its stylistic eccentricities. But the film does offer a compelling portrait of what success in modern media demands. To succeed in modern media, you have to not only be willing to make sewage, you have to be able to persuade yourself that you really are a hero journalist. The only way to fake it consistently is to be deluded enough to believe that the performance is reality. If you become too self-aware, the absurd pretensions of the whole industry slap you across the face. The Seydoux character is therefore aggressively unaware of herself. She has internalized her role as the hero journalist, and she reflexively plays the role without any reservations. Or at least, this is how it is in the beginning. Eventually, she gets into a car accident and rear-ends a guy. This seems to trigger something in her. She insists on giving the man money he doesn't really need. Increasingly, she has emotional breakdowns. Sadu cries an awful lot in this film. At earlier stages, the tears seem fake and tactical, but as the character unravels, the breakdowns become more genuine. The more she falls apart, the more her career implodes. You've got to be high on your own supply in this profession. If the audience gets a whiff of the reality that most journalists are just ordinary schmucks with bachelor's degrees, that's the end of it. Journalists aren't alone in this predicament. I know someone who works for a big defense contractor. Some people think his job is unethical. Others think the projects he works on are just a big waste of people's money. He likes to say that in his line of work, quote, it helps if you can drink a little bit of the Kool-Aid. Just a little bit, mind you. If you drink too much you'll lose yourself completely in the ideology of the place. But if you refuse to drink it at all, the whole thing feels pointless, or worse. This is a difficult balance to strike in practice. It's like trying to drink coffee just two or three times a week. You get so much more done the days you drink the coffee, and you feel so useless on the days you don't. How can you drink it some of the time without drinking it all of the time? In practice, most people end up daily coffee drinkers, and most people end up drinking too much of the Kool-Aid. Ideology is everywhere because it's easier to live with it than without it. The media has its own internal logic, 
And the longer you play the media game, the more its logic becomes your logic, until you are nothing more than its mouthpiece. The journalist thinks they're out there changing the world, but the world is changing them. I've met a few media people. They all go into it with the best of intentions. In the beginning, the audience can tell that they really do mean well, and their authentic commitment to a better world wins them a lot of readers, viewers, and listeners. But with success comes money, and once media people have money, they start spending it on apartments and houses, partners and children. They become reliant on the money, and that makes them dependent on the audience. At the same time, they discover the news stories aren't enough to change the world. If you can't change the world, at least you can pay the bills. And the more money you make, the larger the bills become. They fear losing the audience, so they desperately pander to it. They think their years of interviewing have given them an understanding of people. They think they know the audience, that they can keep it. But their lavish lifestyles have fatally disconnected them from the audience. They lose the thread. They do stories that fail to connect. It becomes more and more obvious that while they weren't looking, they became new faces for the old establishment. But they don't see it. They keep trying and it grows more and more pathetic. Any one of us could name media personalities who fit this description. Even as they embarrass themselves, they can continue raking it in as long as they still believe they are the heroes. Some deeply stupid chunk of the audience will stagger on with them if they continue to play the role. It is only when they cannot fool themselves that they are truly finished. And why should they fail to fool themselves? Most of them are just as stupid as their fans. So on it goes. Yeah, I mean, you, you see this a lot in the um, quote-unquote self-described left media space, which, as I've said many times, I think, philosophically speaking, we can say is in the left. But, um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite sad. Okay, I have a question for you, though. So the woman's name is France Demeure, which means France remains. And oh, yeah. meur means it's like the second person singular of the verb to die in the present tense. But I was trying to like wall isn't like meur. That's mur, M-U-R. Oh, but right. I was like, I was trying to work out like, but I don't think because it really is like if France, you know, like France. I mean, it's a name, but yeah. it's not that common. But then like demeur, like how random is that? I was like trying to. I can't work. Like I don't know. I just don't. I think it's like an obvious symbol without any, you know, signified. I think. I mean, I don't know. Other than like the meaning is like, ah, it's just a random thing. <laughs> like it sounds really symbolic, but maybe it's not. What do you do? You guys have any interpretations of that? But, but all of the associations you just made, like maybe what what is going on? I mean, like yeah, I mean, that's true. That it's just the same shit. Yeah, that's uh, true. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just these I, again. I I I think it's. Well, I don't know. It's complicated talking about authorial intention or artistic intention. I mean, obviously, we're sort of trained out of it. You know, I mean, deconstruction tells us. Yeah, exactly. Authorial intention. But at the same time, when you're dealing with someone like Bruno Dumont, who, you know, it, it, it seems, you know, that everything is del deliberate, you know, it's like it, and it's not um, irrelevant that she's called this. Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. You know, it's like. Mm, I don't know. I thought about making a lot out of the fact that her name is France. I thought about doing a whole like allegorical thing with it, but it felt too much like going out on a limb. It had gotten all very elaborate in my mind. You know, France is like a posh journalist in that France itself drinks its own Kool-Aid 
and tells itself it's this special Gaulist state that is very important in the European Union and is this kind of hero state that is so essential and so critical. And meanwhile, its actual role and actual importance has declined. It isn't able to prevail in negotiations with Germany. It is increasingly sidelined in favor of the uh, the kind of uh, Baltic states and, and the Netherlands and the Scandinavian countries. Uh, in, in Germany's policymaking, the former Habsburg countries in Germany's policymaking. But it continues to tell itself that it's this very, very important European country at the center of everything. It's the kind of hero country that is the center and the beating heart of Europe. And as long as it tells itself that, it's able to keep electing these total pretentious yahoos like, like Macron, who are just completely fish out of water in the actual Europe, which actually exists. Yeah. And I think there's a very specific kind of intellectual culture, which is on show in this film, like the kind of the, the TV talk show discussion, uh, which, which which is also in cachet. If you mm-hmm. recall, like Michael Haneke, also the main character is this kind of person, this kind of media person. And there's something extremely French about the, you know, this sort of, I don't know, middle brow intellectual, like the presentation or the performance of uh, inter- intellectual life, which is which is actually like. Yeah, completely self-reinforcing. And it's very interesting if you think about Eric Zemmour, you know, this very controversial character who is also a TV talk show, just host, just as, or you know, and, and has been in journalism and the media for years on end, just like Berlusconi, although Berlusconi is more tacky. You know, France has this kind of, yeah, image of itself as 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 the kind of almost like, yeah, the, the intellectual uh, part of Europe, if you like, you know, in this very... Uh, intense and often very hermetic way. Like France is very strange. It has its own version of other of ideas from other countries, but it doesn't actually like people um, bringing those ideas to France in person. Like this is a very silly and 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 slightly personal example. But when I wrote my first book, One Dimensional Woman, it was pamphlet, but um, it got translated into lots of languages, like seven or eight languages, including French. But France was the only country that didn't ever invite me to like come on the radio or, or give a talk. There. Like it, it, it did receive the book, like it was discussed in some magazines a little bit or in a newspaper. But it was literally like it had no, no relation to its author. Whereas in Germany, they were like, yeah, come over and talk to us. And, you know, and it, there's something very weird about France. Like it, it has it, it kind of takes things in, but then it discusses it as France, like you know, there is like, there's no outside in a certain way. Um, I mean, it's interesting when you think about like um, issues to do with like, even like, even the way like the cities are designed with like the banlieue, you know, the immigrants can come, but they're kept in a sort of ghetto outside the city. You know, there is a sort of like, you know, this uh, liberalism and, you know, tolerance and whatever, but not really. (laughs) I said it has to be French. Um, Yeah. And I have to say, you know, talking about, things like racism in America. Interesting. I remember, I remember like, I, you know, it's, it's different. And, and in many ways, um, I don't know if you can use the word worse because you have a certain history in America, but there is, there's a, a lot of racism and, uh, you know, obviously Cache is an example with, with what happened in the protests, the FLN in 1960 or 62, uh, when all these protesters were just drowned in the sand. Um, so th- there is like a, a real, a real history of racism, but almost it's sort of like not really acknowledged because it's sort of like, oh, we're the, we French people are, you know, we're the good guys. We're the, oh, we're the, we have the secularism. 
there's there's a certain French exceptionalism that has tended to isolate France for hundreds of years now, tended to diplomatically isolate France and sideline France. And you know, it, in part, you can you can see it in the Euro crisis in, in how the term pigs has been uh, used by the Germans to refer to all of the other Romance countries, you know, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and then also Greece for good measure is thrown in too as these kind of, of bad, delinquent states. But France is meant to be the kind of, uh, of good example of a romance country. So it can be the beating heart and the intellectual heart of Europe without being in the bad group of lazy Southern European countries. And so it, it doesn't want to join in and be with those countries and be grouped with those countries. And it thinks itself better than those countries. At the same time, it imagines that Germany thinks of it as a peer. When Germany doesn't, Germany thinks of it as the least bad of that group. And Germany would rather work with the Netherlands or Poland uh, on many different issues. And so it, it doesn't really have a group of friends in Europe. It is isolated from the, the rich boys club. And it's also too snooty to be with the poor countries. So it can't lead the South. And it's isolated in negotiations up north. So it just doesn't really have a home. And then it manages to find ways to alienate its old colonies uh, in, in all sorts of ways. So France is just constantly kind of caught on an island by itself. And the more it's isolated diplomatically, the more it fetishizes its own culture and retreats into that as a kind of defense mechanism for maintaining its way of doing things. But it's very complicated, isn't it? Because it also produces people like Dumont or Welbeck, who are in a way some of the most uh, extraordinary critics, right? <laughs> like, or, or, you know, they're the ones who can see, you know, what's happening and, and, and can, I mean, you know, Dumont's film, as I said, other films are often set in like Normandy and rural France and they're, they're much more brutal than that, but they're kind of also about like the depiction of poverty in France. Some of his, you know, it's a very different image than the one in, in of the, the image of Paris in this film, right? Like they're often much more, uh, acute, right, about the reality of, of rural life in France. Yeah. And whereas, and you know, and Welbeck is just this like extraordinarily, I don't know, brutally perceptive, you know, genius in the strict sense, you know, of, of channeling the spirit of the age. And so, so I don't know, like it, it's still, France still has this kind of, you know, and in other things as well, not so much music, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mean to just great. slag it off. I don't mean to just slag off <laughs> no, no, the, no, the kind of yeah. gallo, gallocentrism. But I, I, I think it's valuable when it comes to resisting the Germans and resisting the Germanization of the European Union. I think it has some value. The trouble is because it also includes a kind of pretentious condescension to the Southern European countries. France is in this position of wanting to resist the Germans, but having no friends with which to resist the Germans. Uh, and so then, because it has no friends with which to resist the Germans, it inevitably ends up accommodating the Germans. So you get Macron who tries to negotiate with the Germans by making a bunch of concessions on labor market reforms, immiserating huge numbers of French people. And then, of course, the Germans don't give him anything in return for doing that. They go, good, you should have done that 10 or 20 years ago. They don't, they, they're not at all impressed by it. And so the, the French are constantly in this position of neither leading a coalition of southern states to challenge the German position, uh, nor are they... Buddying up with the Germans and cooperating with them. And, and so they're in this kind of, of 
they're, they're just too isolated to effectively resist the structure. And I like a lot of their ideas about resisting the structure. I like a lot of the things that come out of French political theory and French uh, philosophy. But unless they buddy up with other European states, all of that stuff is going to get steamrolled by the by the Germanocentric European Union. Uh, and that's what's been slowly happening. And the French are still just not willing to really make nice with, uh, say, the Italians or the Spaniards or the Greeks. And you have like the, the whole story of what happened in Greece with Varoufakis you know, going to the French and treating the French like they're, you know, of course, his natural allies and they should be the ones defending him and defending the Greeks from the austerity demands of the Germans, you know, looking to the French as an ally. And France just was completely unable to help him because it hasn't put in the work to construct a balancing coalition within the European Union to deal with the Germans. And the Germans have all these allies. They don't have to negotiate bilaterally with France because they have this coalition of you know, the new Hanseatic League with the Scandinavian countries and the Baltic countries and the Netherlands, the Benelux. You know, the, the Germans make friends all over the place in Europe. And the French, because they don't do this, even though I think they have a more compelling European vision than the Germans do, are, are totally sidelined and unable to realize any of it. And because of this, there's just been a steady erosion of any commitment to Europe in France, and this just kind of retreat into a nationalist Gaulism, which won't ultimately work. It won't ultimately save the situation. This is partly why Zemmour, again, is such a strange figure, but somehow also, like, not surprising. You know, like, this mm, yeah, very, seriously. Like, you know, he he, see, he he's almost like a cross between Welbeck and a Welbeck character. Like, you know, this, <laughs> he's, you know, it's this very, very, very weird combination of, yeah, like a Gaullist, uh, almost not even like semi-pro-Pétain, like a uh, Napoleonic Republican nationalist, but anti-immigrant, you know, he's Jewish, but he's pro-Christian, you know, he's this sort of weird synthesis. And, mm -hmm. and he's also very pro-French culture, but only up to a certain point. It's like Brigitte Bardot is like the cutoff or something like this. You know, I've been reading his books. I've trying to be write, writing something about Zamor's books, you know, what, yeah. what, what is literary, who is the literary Zamor, right? And it is, it's just so weird. Like he's, he's trying to combine all of these things in a sort of uniquely nostalgic, but new French vision for <laughs> France. There are too many ways to be conservative in France because yeah. there are five republics and three different monarchs mm -hmm. you can try yeah. to restore. Yeah. And, yeah. No, I, yeah. Was, I was just saying that France is, France is very, very interesting. I mean, I spent a lot of time growing up in France and the, the best education I ever got was one year at ENS as an Erasmus student. Like, honestly, I think it impacted me in, in a way that nothing, no other education experience I've ever had. And I didn't even do any work, you know, it's just there. But anyway, um, but France is riven with contradiction. You know, you have the country that, you know, um, that collaborated at the same time as having the resistance. You have, you know, this sort of um, liberal openness, but actually a highly, highly, highly conservative and classist dimension, highly classist. And people are willing, who are willing to, you know, there's a really interesting um, murder of a man who murdered his own family, essentially because he couldn't sustain, um, you know, living as an upper middle class Catholic BJ family, essentially, you know, that, that was a fate worse than death. So he, he killed his entire family. Um, but uh, yeah, so you have, you have these, you have, you have, you have the revolution suddenly going into the, you know, the terror, you have this, you have these weird, weird dimensions. Um, 
within France that uh, it's interesting because I feel like the, the British spirit is to be immediately kind of self-critical like we're all a bit shit but the, the French tend to be very um I don't know if proud's the right word but like yes we have the best, best education system yes you know our, you know our university our grande college the best but you know they, they don't they don't they very much don't um fall into the US or UK educational model at all um but there isn't really a recognition of the fact that it doesn't really fit together. But as you say, this is a more character synthesizing all the worst bits, potentially. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what's interesting, I suppose, from one angle is, is how and why he's popular and with who, yeah. right? So, I mean, I think, again, with all of these political figures, you might disagree with them politically, but the important thing is to understand why they have purchased, right? And I think that the left yeah, is generally absolutely. bad at this. It's, 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 it's usually like, oh, he said some anti-immigrant racist things, therefore he's just an awful person and, and you know, anyone who is remotely attracted to him is therefore also awful without actually for a second pausing to understand how and why he might be appealing and what he might be reacting to and, you know, and all of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this obviously again and again, again, we saw it with Trump, we saw it with, you know, Absolutely. whatever, Brexit, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. yeah. You have to look <laughs> at why these political figures become relevant because exactly. if you just have a, a moral reaction to them, it doesn't go anywhere. But you, but you say, you say that that's the left fails to do this, but it's precisely the left's job to think structurally, to not blame yeah. the individual, to think about like communities in a whole. So yeah, the, the, the left has failed on being the left. Absolutely. I mean, and if you go to parts of France, particularly kind of rural or semi-rural France, I mean, it's like a, there's a deep sense of like depression and stasis. And, you know, even though there's like maybe beautiful food and like the produce is fantastic and like there's beautiful old cathedrals or whatever that, you know, in the times I have been to some of these places, it's like they feel very weird. Like they're kind of stuck somehow. And you have a lot of you know, poorer, older people, there are big problems with alcoholism and drug use in parts of France, you know, like it's not, it's not a like thriving country in lots of ways. Like if, if there's definitely something kind of up. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can see why someone like Zimor would, would maybe be very appealing, especially if you see, and again, this use of television, it's like, if you look at, if we were on t- mainstream TV every night, like people would feel that they know us. I mean, this is also part of the point of the, the film we, we're discussing. And you can absolutely, in a way, tap into, I mean, Boris Johnson was on Have I Got News For You for years, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone in a way knew or felt they knew who he was. Like he was a safe, he was a known quantity. Like TV is enormously seductive in this way. Like it doesn't matter how kind of awful you are, is it? but if you're on TV, just the mere fact of being repeated you, you can actually completely leverage this into a political position, you know, as all of these leaders did. They were all on, you know, Berlusconi and, you know, some more trying this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it, it's so weird. Like what? I don't know. There must be some very good cultural studies stuff on this, like TV to politics pipeline. You know, it's just a classic populist The thing is, as soon as it's becoming relevant, it's also becoming irrelevant because television has already peaked as a news medium, and is now on the decline. So the moment at which it has become prevalent enough that everybody who's got a political career is somebody who used to be on television, uh, now we are entering a new period where gradually that will stop being the case. So I think before we even get a chance to understand this moment, it will pass us by. Yeah, and I guess there's some stuff about that, this transition in the film, you know, like her assistant, who's this kind of slightly... Uh, I don't know, like half kind of what's the word sort of um, I don't know. I want to say supplicant, like like she's very um. A, a she's of, like a, she's like a like a kind of um, 
a fluffer. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, like, like, yeah, she's constantly boosting the Leia Sudu character, the France character, and and um, and at the same time won't admit her mistake. Like she's not a very uh, honest person in some ways, you know. And but she's kind of obsessed with the, the Twitter, like what would be the Twitter response to what's going mm-hmm. on. Like she's constantly checking the reaction, you know, like boom, um, you know, yeah. and, and so there is that kind of hint about this transition, mm-hmm. maybe. We've got this kind of splintering now where, I mean, there's a chunk of people, several hundred people or so, who probably have heard every single one of our episodes and probably do feel they know us, right? And I think with a lot of television uh, that remains, a lot of internet and YouTube and, and whatever that remains, there's a chunk of people who feel that they know those people very well, but it's not a large enough chunk of people anymore for a political career to straightforwardly be built around that. And so as the discourse partitions, into these enclaves, there is a chunk of people who would totally get behind you, but they are spread out across a whole territory. They're not concentrated in any particular district, and they're actually not enough to start a political career. Yeah. Having having heard the uh, extent of your political ambitions before, Benjamin, I'm quite glad that you uh, <laughs> you don't have like, like enough of a voting block. Although, actually, to be honest, you'd be a much better politician than all of the existing politicians. <laughs> But I just but, think if you turned into like Napoleon or something. I just felt really realized, like I've been feeling, I don't know if it's because we've done like a lot of podcasts, because what I felt with my last podcast was I felt that the act of dialoguing with other people in public and not being embarrassed, embarrassed about it um, helps you to selfishly work out what you actually think, which I think is a useful exercise for people, um, especially in this world where we're encouraged to, you know, everything's privatized and relationships with people is disintegrated and, you know, it is difficult to like honestly know yourself and to actually inhabit your desires. But I have sort of felt like maybe doing more lectures and doing more podcasts. Now I don't even know. I don't. I, I know less about myself than I did before. <laughs> now I'm kind of confused. I don't even know what I think anymore. You've Socrates everything. Sorry, you've you've auto Socrates. I've auto Socrates. <laughs> it was the I, end game of podcasting. You I mean, it's like, like I don't know. Yeah, the, the real end game of podcasting, if you're too successful at it, is is the Sedu arc, where you just become a vector for the audience of the podcast. If the podcast audience is too big and generates too much money, then it starts to dictate how you think. Yeah, absolutely. The tail wags the dog. Well, I don't think we're at any risk of that, but um, it is interesting. I, I have increasing numbers of conversations with people about the kind of para or post-academic sphere or the intellectual culture that is outside of the institutions, um, which actually often, you know, understandably include podcasts, right? So there are mm-hmm. an, an now enormous numbers of extremely high level, um, intellectually sophisticated or very nuanced and specific podcasts dedicated to particular things um, that are that have like a hardcore audience. Like, so even if every podcast that was well done had 20 people who listened to every episode, like this is amazing, right? This is in a way, this is what Illich is talking about with the learning networks. Like how do you connect people who have similar interests, um, you know, outside of the institutions, outside of the, the formal uh, procedures, which in any case always end up going wrong. Like, as we can see, I think the contemporary university is more or less over. It will have to, it will have to radically uh, change. Um, in order to survive, um, let alone actually start producing interesting work. So, you know, you have this thriving system outside of that where people are genuinely want to listen and have high-level conversations. And yeah. the difference is it's it's not a university or a salon. It's not in one geographic place where everybody lives near it and therefore everybody can be a political block. Yeah, that's that's a complicated aspect of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it is in like the end game of the university. I mean, yeah, I just don't, I, it is, I mean, it is a real example of um, capitalism destroying the very, you know, it's, I don't know if it's even itself, but really destroying the neoliberalization of the university was a big mistake. I mean, it's, it is the thing that destroys the thing. Yeah. I mean, people were pointing this out, can I just say, as someone who was heavily, heavily involved in this movement uh, more like 12, 13 years ago now. Um, you know, we were saying this, like it was manifestly obvious to everyone that <laughs> the increasing neoliberalism of the university would destroy it in every single respect. Yeah, um, 100%. I mean, I couldn't, no, none of us, I think, could have foreseen some of what happened, right? Like yeah. it didn't quite go down the way we expected. And, and certainly this, this threat, this strange inter ideological supplement that is leaked from the universities to the world. I, I didn't really foresee that bit, but <laughs> other things were, were obvious, you know, like the separation of, of merit from, you know, access to education. Like that if you financialize everything, including things that really shouldn't be monetized or financialized, you destroy them um, simply. But it is funny as well, because, you know, the people potentially who benefit as in people in, in a higher stratum of, of the economic system, their offspring, you know, they're, they're, they're digging the graves of their own bourgeois yeah. offspring. Like, how can you go to a university? I mean, it's interesting. I saw this thing today where lawyer, law firms are offering new graduates like 150 grand in London. I don't know if this is true, but it's like you have you have very few people making any money and younger yeah. people saddled with more and more and more and more debt. And they're literally, I mean, try to explain this to the older generation in terms of opportunities. There's, there's, there literally are none. Yeah. I mean, I was saying, no, yeah. yeah, who's like 29. He has like one degree, but that's like, of ages ago and it, you know um and he's very very clever right he's exactly the sort of person you would expect to go into a master's program and PhD and he, he just will never do it like he you know the whole thing is kind of it mitigates against any relation between intellectual capacity and oh yeah 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 you know so, yeah. so quite rightly he's you know he's a practical guy he's like it's not worth it it's you know whatever minimally I might learn I can learn online and I can it's interesting how how it all comes full circle you know and Oxford was founded it was a place to train priests, and the priests were the people who did all the academic work, and they could do it as long as they were priests, and they kept their academic work within the confines of, of the theology. And now the universities make academics who act like priests. <laughs> now, it used to be priests that act like academics. Now it's yeah. academics that act like priests. It's so true. But is it, I've also noticed this thing, interestingly, of people like using their PhD as if it's sort of a, um, a some kind of um, indicator within the media sphere of, I don't, I don't, obviously like it indicates some level of expertise or whatever, but it's like, it gets you Twitter followers. Like there's a lot of people in the sort of woke academia space who are Twitter micro-influencers. And it's, it's really odd. I mean, it, like Twitter is obviously a very kind of like woke kind of place, but um I find it really strange, but I don't. But I don't think you know, like in terms of how um, horridly exploitative and competitive the world of actually academia jobs is. I'm like, I can't imagine that these people like have a solid income or a solid job or a solid teaching role or whatever. But yeah, you put like PhD at the end of your name on Twitter, and somehow, and you start having some woke takes. 
Every time people do this, they steal valor from the concept of having a PhD and run down the respectability of PhDs, the employability of PhDs. Uh, you know, it, we, we are going through a generation of, of thieves, of marauders, who are milking the concept of having a PhD for all that it's worth. Uh, dragging the reputation of having a PhD through the mud to the point where nobody views it as an impressive thing to do. And if you have a PhD, increasingly the view is that you're just some weird obsessive person, uh, not somebody who has anything to contribute, but just some weird obsessive person who did something weird and obsessive that has no real economic value. Uh, and as that happens, gradually the PhD will be less and less useful and less and less effective at getting uh, a, le a legitimate hearing. As people use it to get hearings for garbage, it becomes useless. Uh, and that means that fewer people do it. And the thing is, you learn an awful lot from doing a PhD. And you learn a lot of things that you can't learn some other way. And people who haven't done it think that they can go on the internet and learn it on their own. But nobody's going to force you to do the amount of reading that you have to do if you do a PhD. Nobody's going to hold you to the standard that you'd be held if you were doing a PhD. You know, at a proper university, doing it in the proper way, uh, you'll never get held to that standard if you don't do one, ever in your life, by anybody. And as we run down the reputation of this, it is becoming uh, just something that nobody really values or cares about. And you know, it makes me wonder, how much longer will we even have PhDs? Because you know, nobody seems to care anymore about the fact that you have one. Everybody who has one uses it to hawk garbage. And you have some people getting multiple, multiple masters. I know many people who have like three or four masters or two PhDs, you know, and it's just, I mean, I think for various different reasons. But I think, you know, maybe what you were saying, Benjamin, is part of it. I think the job market is another um, I think the the um, fact that it they do generate revenue um, from some students for universities. It's funny. I was having a discussion with my dad the other day about about things like this, and uh, he was saying, "You know, I don't know. I think you're too too harsh about the you know the economic economic environment for young people. You know, my organisation employs young people. I was like, Dad, you literally had someone recently who has a PhD doing something like social media." Literally, it's like this is. And I remember a couple of years ago him saying we had this interview and these three people who made it the last round and like somebody had a PhD and it's been like a job for like an eighteen-year-old. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. My slightly unpleasant view on this is that probably about ten percent of the people to go to university that should be it, um, and even fewer people should do a PhD. I think it's a very strange thing to do, um, and it should actually be. Only something that very few people do. <laughs> well, it's interesting, the French model, so they have, it's flawed in its own way because obviously um, it does, you know, you can get to a grand école not going from a top school, but what often happens is, so you have your high school, mm. then if you, you can either go to um, a university that's free and anybody can go to, and you have sort of lecture halls of 300 people. But like, I think this is actually kind of good. You know, I think people should get degrees, but then they have these specialist smaller schools, Grand École, which have like, say, the top 50 students in engineering will go to one school. Yeah. And basically it's very, very competitive. And I'm not saying there are many, many problems with this, not least to do with the stress on children between 18 and 21 or young people. 
um, and what it does to you psychologically. And it can literally cause you to have a very, very early, you know, issue psychologically. But um, you go to these these schools called prepa and they're like a, something between a, a school and a university. And you do these sort of essentially crash courses to get to the point where you can do these six hour exams to, to get into one of these wonderful. And then when you're there, you're given a salary. And basically you are like this responsibility of the state almost you're a state employee and you will, for instance, the one I went to as an exchange student was for academics and, you know, you, you have a, you have a title, an official kind of government title and you have a salary. And then um, you will do something called aggregation, which is a teaching qualification for um, top schools and universities. And then after that, you'll do a PhD. So you might not finish your PhD. And so you do, you have to do two masters aggregation, which you can do before or after, and then a PhD. So you might not be 30, but many fewer people, like it's very, it's it's really seen as like a difficult, you know, some of my friends would be like, you're still doing a PhD, you know, what the hell, at, at 30, or some people, they might do one in France and might do one in an English language. Well, but it's, but obviously the, the issue is that like, who gets to go to the prepa? Often, for instance, the top ones are in Paris. So um, parents from, let's say, if you live somewhere else, will send their child and put them up in a, like, they're not, um, pers- many of them aren't private, but like you can go to private prepper, but then you have to be able to rent in Paris for two or three years. You, It's two years, but you can do a third year. Somebody I knew did four and I think completely lost it. But and it's very, very, very stressful. But you, there is a preservation of a certain, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's the solution, but at the same time, you can get very good, like the Sorbonne is not a grande école. You know, you can go to really good universities and get really good degrees. Obviously, you have other countries like Germany that really um, put a lot of um, importance on like apprenticeships and technical qualifications. And it can be really prestigious in its own way. And obviously, there's reasons why there are jobs available. Obviously, there's jobs available like that in every country, but in Germany especially. But, you know, it isn't just like the question of because, you know, obviously back in the day and I'm not saying back in the day is better because obviously there's always issues. Um, but, you know, it was a real thing to go to university and there was the capacity to pay for people to go to university because it was so f- few. And um, obviously we have there are there are problems with meritocracy. I think meritocracy is an ideological illusion. But at the same time, there is a question of differentiation and that things are suitable for some people and are not. And I do think, you know, the French model, people do get to, you can go to university and you can get a degree in all sorts of things and you don't have to get into debt. And they can be very, very good degrees. I, I think that there probably is some number of people who can and should do PhDs greater than used to be the case uh, or greater than is the case in France. However, we can't supply real academic jobs to the number of people who can and want to do PhDs. And because we can't supply real academic jobs to them, too many of them end up hustling in the civil service, in media, in think tanks, and in other positions where they get ahead, not by doing academic work, but by helping to use their expertise to legitimate an institutional point of view. That destroys the credibility of their academic background when they put it in service of some organization that's just trying to advance a perspective. And that is gradually running down the credibility of academia writ large. The fact that so many PhD students are pushed into these legitimation jobs. And eventually, we're going to cannibalize those jobs because we're going to run down the credibility of academia so much that having a PhD will no longer be an advantage. 
And being an expert will no longer be an advantage or being seen to be an expert will no longer be an advantage because experts will have no credibility in society. Mm. Uh, and then we'll just have a society where people just scream all the time about whatever it is that they think is true. And there it's won't be any means of potentially. I mean, we're, we're on this path. We definitely have the media. Because we have, we have PhDs in jobs where they are not actually using PhD skills. Mm-hmm. where they're just uh, there to make an organization look good or to make some particular person or some particular perspective oh, I mean, look this good. is part of the, the kind of bleeding out of the ideology, you know, so all these liberal arts grads, you know, are repeating the things they've learned. And, you know, that this is how it kind of leached out, right? I mean, we, we, I guess we discussed this on the Vox episode and, you know, this kind of that level of sort of like middle brow, you know, this is the this is the correct thing to think about this particular thing, even though it's not actually true, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And again, like I was thinking of this earlier. This is what I really think it's the sense certainty thing. It's like this is how I feel is the right like ideology kind of tells me, and I'm going to come up with some like quote unquote uh, academic argument exactly. to justify it. So like the tyranny of feelings and like I've, I've probably said this before, but like one of the most important things that we were told at university when I went at 18, you know, and I had my fees paid and I was, it was like this was genuinely meritocratic. Like I felt it, like it was an honor to go. I was like incredibly I'd worked very, very hard. You know, I suddenly got into to, to school when I was 16. I was crap before that. I was in a dream world. And then I, I, I suddenly was like woke up or something. I had some subjective transformation and I was very, very excited to go to university and I was you know, really thrilled and, and proud. And one of the most important things that we were told in, in the first year, which I think about often, is this idea that like, it doesn't matter how you feel, right? They would say that in philosophy, it doesn't matter how you feel about you are nothing, you are nobody, right? What matters is is not what you bring in a way, like it's not how you, whether you're upset by an argument, it's not whether you care about something or other, it's like how well you can argue, you know? It's like you yeah. need to make an argument. It, you cannot resort to emotion. And I think... In a way, one of the major things that was destroyed, you know, as we see, we now live in this kind of tyranny of emotion. Like everything is about how people feel and feeling Trump's reason. And, for, you know, they're, they're, like someone's sadness or supposed harm or whatever is the is is what wins arguments. You know, like I'm suffering or I, I feel harm and, you know, I've been upset, I'm offended. And, and it was so interesting that in, in retrospect, and the, the sort of late 90s or like 97, that they this was explicitly the opposite. Like we were explicitly told not to indulge, not to engage in this. And of course I did philosophy, but it was more, it was broader than that. It was like, this yeah. is what an intellectual life is, right? It's not being like- Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is, bitch. <laughs> this is exactly what we was. I mean, I was at university in the UK, 2007 to 2011. Exactly the same. And things like, like people were starting to bring in, um, there was a, an option to do it like a, a gender performance, you know, about gender performativity paper that you could choose in your fourth year, but uh, in modern languages. But it like, aside from that, people were starting to bring in their own personal things, but it very, like hardly anything. It was really in 2013, 2014 that I really started to notice it. Yeah. But it was not allowed. You couldn't do uh a dissertation about a her story of whatever you couldn't do that you couldn't do um some kind of ism you 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 know it was it was very much considered not um academic that was you know that was that's a journalist yeah yeah exactly behavior yeah 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 and and i i think a lot about the recent debate about omicron where you have uh, in many cases a debate that has devolved into to different people going, but you're not paying attention to these people who are suffering. 
and using this as a trump card to get whatever they want. Uh, you know, on the one side, people are going, well, what about immunocompromised people? Do you just not care about them? And on the other side, people are going, what about you know, mentally ill people stuck at home and, and rates of suicide? Do you just not care about them? And the debate just turns into a screaming match in which people are accused of not caring about different forgotten groups. And of course, the reality is whatever policy option you take, there will be some people who will be harmed by that policy option. Everybody in this debate is having a position that involves harming somebody. And there is no no escape (laughs) from that. It's politics. Some people are harmed by what you choose. Yep. Anyway, we're at the end of the hour. People are literally dying. So. We're at the end of the hour, so we're going to go do the B-side for Patreon listeners. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.